0: God, just thank you for your church. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign. And Lord, we rely upon you, Lord, not only to get us um, through days, Lord, that are difficult, but we also rely on you when times are good. And Lord, I pray that we would see the absolute necessity of um, our humble reliance God, in all times. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us yet again uh, this morning as we study your word that you are sovereign, that you are holy, that you love us, that you are just, that you are gracious and merciful. Help us to see you so clearly in these pages. And, And, Lord, enable us to strengthen ourselves and to be mature, Lord, to grow in that maturity as a body, as a group. I ask it for every single one of us. May we grow in maturity together in our walk with you. May we know you more when we leave this morning than when we walked in. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, you guys. Let's go. Daniel chapter 3. Let's get into chapter 3. No, I didn't plan this. I did not plan to uh, talk about the fiery furnace with the conditions outside. This is a God thing. He just provided a little backdrop for us. So, um, apparently the fires are stoking this morning. So it's by no, by no means am I making light of how many people have suffered at the hands of this, but it is interesting to be talking about something that we can smell right now and taste in our mouths. Um, and so as we begin, as you turn to Daniel chapter three, I want to begin with, uh, the words of an old hymn called How Firm a Foundation. And, um, I thought these were real, um, impactful for what we're going to talk about in our text this morning. This is what a section of that hymn says. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design, thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's, that's such a, I, 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 there's this desire in me, reading those words and listening to that this week, it's like I want to really re, you know, reintroduce that to the church. Because as I thought about that last line of, thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine, this passage of Daniel 3, as we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's a text that we all know really well. Um, as you think about their experience and what they're about to go through, and you think about most likely the fiery furnace that they were cast into as the instrument that was used to smelt the gold that Nebuchadnezzar made his statue out of, there's just a lot of connections here as you think about this theologically, as you think about how it can impact our lives and speak to us. And so it's a very familiar passage, but as I, as I hear those words, the flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God refines us in the processes that are difficult, in the hard times. And so let's lean into it. Let's lean into it and see what God wants to speak to us as we look at um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their interaction with King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's interaction with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two is ended. And now these three are going to be in in play. And we don't see Daniel mentioned in chapter three. Most likely he's in a different area at this time because we we can believe for sure, just as introduction, that Daniel would not, I don't believe, uh bow, to this, this image that we're going to see. I don't think that there's any reason to believe that Daniel would do that or that he conformed to this. So most likely he wasn't around. He was in a different area of Babylon when this took place. And so we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the stage now. And, and once again, we're going to see uh, these young men, what they've been practicing in private, be brought into the public sphere. And I just want to note that as we go forward. So often what you practice in private will be brought into the public sphere. And so how are we practicing for when the Lord gives us opportunity to publicly demonstrate who he is, his goodness, and our walk with him? Are we practicing at home what we will be brought into the public to reveal? And so we move from... The lives of the wise men in chapter 2 being threatened and Daniel being the one who can reveal the dream because God showed it to him, to Nebuchadnezzar, and the interpretation of it, and all the wise men of Babylon were saved through this. Now we realize that these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are quite literally going to go out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, They're going to be put into a new situation that's going to be much more dire and much more serious because it feels a lot more certain that their death is coming. This feels like a much more life-threatening situation because it's a real location, it's a real time, and there's not a lot of hope for them outside of God himself. And so let's look at this text. We're going to take this in two different Sundays. We'll break uh, Daniel chapter 3 into two sections. But let's look at verses 1 through 7. We'll kind of break those down a bit, and then we'll look at a few more verses before we close. So Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, starts this way. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Fascinating situation, and I want to encourage you guys to think about this like you've never heard it before. Think about the, the the situation in play. Think about the factors in play. Things that they're being asked to do. The music. The the rulers. All of the leaders of the nation. There. Just imagine this situation in your mind. You're looking at an image that's ninety feet tall. You're looking. It's nine feet wide. This is massive. Most likely overlaid with gold, because there probably wasn't enough gold to make this a solid 90-foot statue. So much like things that you would see throughout the Old Testament, as Solomon built the temple especially, they would build it from wood and certain types of framework and then overlay it with gold. Most likely that's the situation we're looking at here. And as you're thinking about this and you're picturing this in your mind, I want you to think about... What Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, verses 37 through 38. It'll be on the screen. It says this, Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Notice this. God gave these things to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 38, Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the what? Head of gold. Now, that's the, the thing, I believe, that stuck in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. What he saw in that image was himself as the head of gold. Now, as he makes this gold statue, what do you suppose inspired him to make a gold statue this large, this monstrous, but notice the, what what it would look like? Completely made of gold, right? Completely overlaid with gold. The message of the dream was clear for us to understand. Kingdoms of men do succeed. Look at the image. But all of them will be destroyed and forgotten because the kingdom of Jesus will surpass them all. This rock that would come through, this stone that would crush the feet and crumble this, this image all the way to dust, and it would blow away like chaff in the wind. It says in chapter 2, never to be remembered, but that stone will grow into a mountain that would fill the whole earth. And we looked at Jesus as we saw it. like, this is a clear picture of the kingdom of Christ of the coming kingdom of Jesus, but Nebuchadnezzar, much like us, much like we get to be sometimes, looks and says, why only a head of gold? Why am I just the head? Sure, I'm the head. Sure, I have all this authority and all these things. Who are these other guys? Who are these other nations? What are these other materials? Shouldn't it all be me? I mean, look around. Look at what I've done. Think about what Nebuchadnezzar will say in chapter 4 later on. Look at this kingdom I have built and the beautiful, majestic glory of my building, of my doing. This is the guy we're dealing with. Nebuchadnezzar, although initially he recognized that God is more powerful than all his other gods, he mentioned that in chapter 2, but the way he says it definitely leads us to look at that and go, okay, you're putting God above your other gods, but not sovereign. Not almighty, not all powerful alone. And as is often the case, when we have an experience with God that causes us to recognize his power, that does not necessarily mean that we have recognized him heart deep. That doesn't mean that we've given our hearts to him necessarily. And we see this happen a lot. It's what explains to me a lot of experiences at summer camp. Don't get me wrong. Love summer camp. I love watching the same four kids come forward weeping and telling me they want to turn their lives around every summer. I love it. And I mean that. I really do. If you're watching and you're like, I haven't been to church in two years. I loved it when you came forward. Come see me. But here's the thing. When you think about this, you guys, why does that happen? Why does that happen? Almost predictably so, and it's not always the case because sometimes these kids experience real change. That's why I love taking kids to camp. But why does it happen that some people come forward and go... God's just called. I could feel it in my life. I just, I got to get these things right. And then two weeks later, they're right back in the middle of where they were because we're just like Nebuchadnezzar. God reveals to us his power, his glory, where we should be and how we should be worshiping. And yet as time goes on, we start slipping back because the heart was never given because you can win somebody's mind and not get their heart. But if you win the heart, you get the mind. If you win someone's heart, their mind will go to that. But if you look at this, there's amazing studies being done with brains right now and how they function one-directionally. Basically, the center of your emotion is the heart. We know this is part of our mind, right? You're like, I want to give the Lord my whole heart. That's not what he's talking about, right? It's talking about a part of our mind, right? This is the center of emotion. There's a heart. And when you think about this, I don't want to get into this whole thing with this, but think about this. When you win the heart, when someone gives their hearts to something, the mind will follow that. But he you ever noticed that some Christians are all about doing the right thing, but it, they're, they're just not in love with Jesus. They just know it's the right thing, so they do it because it's the right thing to do. It's interesting, isn't it? Fascinating studies have been done on this. What's interesting about this to me is I think that what we're seeing with Nebuchadnezzar is what we experience ourselves and our experience often. It's that we begin to reshape God's sovereign view of the future with our own desire. We begin to reshape over time what God has said is going to be. We start turning it into our own thing. We start molding it into our own image. We start creating an idol out of it, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does. Essentially, he built a statue that represented his will for the future. He took what God's will was and what God said was going to happen. He goes, well, let's just... I mean, I'm Nebuchadnezzar after all, I have all this power. Let's just reshape this a bit to look a little more me, right? A little more me focused, a little more me centric. He's making the statement, I'll make my own future. We haven't heard that at all, have we? Be what you want to be. Make your own future. Do your own thing. Do what's right in your own eyes. Isn't that what was wrong in judges? That every man was doing what was right in his own eyes rather than, Trusting in a higher authority. Although it's absurd to think in such a way in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel's just revealed the dream and interpreted it for Nebuchadnezzar, you think about that situation, it'd it'd be ridiculous for him to look and go, wow, I really did have all the answers, right? He was just shown the answers. It'd be ridiculous and absurd. But what happens is time passes. And Nebuchadnezzar is desensitized by the prideful passing of time. Prideful passing of time. I want you to note this pride plus time is the great desensitizer. You add your pride to enough time. It desensitizes you because after a little while, we would never rise up to somebody initially when they show their power and be like, yeah, that was all me because it's right there. The evidence is right there, but pride as it warps our thinking over time, will start creating those thoughts and signs. Like maybe I was right. Maybe I saw it differently. Maybe I should. You ever have those thoughts in your head? You're like, perhaps I was in the right the whole time. You know, we think this way. That's what pride does to us. That's why it's so important that we stay humble, because humility over time makes us Christ-like. Pride over time desensitizes us to truth, and we start living a lie. I think of it often when I, I read um, the poetic writings of the great, great poet, Gollum, when he he said to Bilbo, this thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays kings, ruins town, and beats high mountains down. Time. Given enough time, we watch it destroy everything physical. Physical. We watch decay come to everything physical over time. How essential is it for us to be renewed within even as time is devouring our physical bodies? Even as we're watching the world around us decay, we should be renewed. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we don't give up even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Paul's like, you can wreck us physically. But inside within us, the spirit, that's what we're focused upon because that's being renewed day by day by the Lord. And that is eternal. That's untouchable. There's so much at stake here to bow down in front of this idol in Babylon, in the plain of Dura. By the way, Dura is a name for a walled area. And people are like, oh, it's probably over here. It's probably there. It, it really could have been any location that was walled in the Babylonian kingdom. Because that's what Dura means. But when you think about this, on the plain of Dura, is all these people are standing. All these, all these uh, kingdom rulers. This massive crowd is gathered in front of this ninety-foot impressive gold statue. Put yourself there. I mean, that's huge. Nine feet wide. It's almost two of me wide. Laying down. Not, not this way. You're like, wow. <laughs> these are size sixty fours. But here, here's the thing. You guys think about this. <laughs> The decision that's being made to bow down to this idol is far more than just, well, I mean, we just should make him happy. I mean, he wants us to do this. He is going to kill us if we don't, you know, like this isn't the battle. This isn't the front for us to fight on. Hold on a second. The true decision is this. Do I bow before the will of God or do I rebel against the will of God? That is the decision that's put into play here. Are you going to bow before the will of God? This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would know very well as good Jewish boys. We are not simply doing what the crowd is doing. We are making a decision either for or against God in this situation. And as people from every nation gathered, the music began. Yeah, I don't know what it sounded like, but here in verse 7, this is important. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound, just pick your favorite song to hate, and it's this song the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music. People, notice this, of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Three stood that we know of. The rest went down. Now, it's interesting. God always puts just the right thing in my path when I'm studying for a text like this. It's so cool. I like to read a lot. I like to to stay up on news as much as I can without getting depressed, so I have to temper that. Um, but I, I'm watching a a lecture, basically, a secular lecture, not talking about COVID, that's talking about vast majority and what he believes about vast majority. And this was fascinating to me. He concluded that 99% of people are in agreement that the roof is falling. If 99% of people in a room will conclude together that the roof is falling that the 1% that says it's fine, not only will the news headline reporting the story not take into consideration the 1%, rightfully so, because 99% of these people say this is obvious, not only are they right in not reporting that, but he um, basically said that that 1% sh- opinion should be discounted as being a product of brainwashing. Okay? Okay. Basically, they, they just, and that was his statement, and he had very specific things he was applying this to, but as I listened to it on the whole, I started thinking about vast majority. I started thinking about what we know of vast majority, and the following question came to mind. What if the 1% are building inspectors? Not many of them would be, statistically speaking. What if 1% of them say, no, that's just warped panels, your structure is completely intact? It could look very convincing that the roof was falling, with the exception of someone who knows what they're talking about looking at it and saying, no, I mean, your panels might fall, but your, your, the integrity of your roof is fine. Now, I'm not saying that is the case. I'm just saying what it, I'm just asking a question. I would ask this person that question and say, okay, feed into this. Now, here's another thing that came to mind. I think this is far more important. Just because there's a vast majority in agreement doesn't make them right, does it? We know this. And we don't just know it from history i.e. World War II. Um, that's the first thing that comes to mind in, in our recent history. Just because the vast majority of people are allowing something doesn't mean it should be allowed. America stands to be condemned for that as well because we didn't react fast enough. What's interesting about this is that when you look at Scripture, the vast majority oftentimes is not right. Not every time are they wrong. But what are the first situations that you think of when I say, what are times in scripture where you see a vast majority stating something that's negative, that's not right? My mind goes to Exodus 32, the golden calf. All the people come to Aaron and say, Moses has been in the mountain too long. Make us an idol. Behold, your gods that brought you up out of Egypt, right? Vast majority in that situation, save Aaron, wanted the golden calf. It's dangerous. Think about this. First Samuel eight, verses nineteen through twenty. The nation of Israel demands a king. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, We must have a king over us, then he will be like all the other we will be all like all the other nations, our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. What did God want? No king. But he let them have their king, and their king made their heart. It's not and the kings continued to make a mess thereafter, even though David was a man after God's own God himself, who should have been one leading. We can't think of any New Testament examples, can we? A vast majority being wrong. Crucify him. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five. The Jews accept full responsibility as a group for putting Jesus to death. His blood be on us and on our children. Acts 15, 32, the right at Ephesus Most of them did not know why they had come together. They were just shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for hours and hours and hours. And you're like, well, surely that would never happen again. See Portland. See Seattle. See all these things that are going on in our world. You know, there's really nothing new under the sun. Just because the vast majority is doing something does not make it right. We need to have conversation. We need to look at things soberly. Here in Daniel 3.7, every people, all the people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When God gave the laws of honesty and justice in Exodus 23, fascinating verse in verse 2. This is really interesting stuff. He just says this. The second half of Exodus twenty three two says, you must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. I was sitting in my office as I read that and I just looked over at BJ. I was like... Sometimes you just find these gems in scripture that, you know, you've read them before, but you just haven't really read them and thought about them in context of your world. And in the situation, not only in Daniel, but in our world, you shall not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. You know, it's like your mama used to say, if everyone jumped into Lake Michigan, would you, you know, like I've never been to Lake Michigan. Maybe I would, maybe be refreshing, but here's the thing. Like you get the point, right? Like, you're like no it's really polluted like here, here's the thing like we understand that it's the question is this just because everyone else is doing it does not mean that you should do it right we understand this and yet i think that we struggle with believing that so many people will follow the antichrist we struggle that so many people are going to follow after a false leader or fall into. You realize, I, I walk around today and I look at people and it's like, I have a hard time believing that all of these people would buy into bowing down to an idol. I was walking around downtown, I was like looking at people and like, I have a hard time believing that someone built this 90-foot idol, you know, made out of gold, that they would all bow down to it. I think they'd be like, no. And then I thought about what an idol represents what an idol is, and how how many of these people are bowing down to different idols rather than the Lord? Why is it that 6% of Kootenai County is in an evangelical church on Sunday morning? 6%. Those are real numbers. 94% of our county is not in an evangelical church on a Sunday morning. Oh, we may be churched, but we are very unchurched. We may look the part, but we all are struggling with this issue of idolatry. And the fact of the matter is, many of us are bowing down to them and we're not even aware of it because we're just doing it because everyone else is. This happens to a lot of us. Don't think of the big golden statue. Think about things that take you away from worshiping God. Think about hobby. Think about the things like, oh, Mike, you are really reaching into my life right now. Yes, and you've given permission to do so. You give me permission to do so. You don't come back. I don't have permission anymore, but, but just examine let's we have to examine ourselves we all struggle with idolatry we all struggle with these things you know what's interesting is when in exodus 23 2 for those of you that know the law you know exactly what i'm talking about here exodus 23 2 when he says you must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing do you know what the crowd at the bottom of the hill is doing they arrived at sinai in chapter 19 they go through all the law they were asking for the golden calf at the bottom of the hill. That comes next. Now we have all this law in between, but by the time you get to chapter 32, we recognize that they're asking for the golden calf. And he's saying, don't follow the crowd. Don't go with, what, with people when they're doing something that you know is not honoring to God. You must choose to honor God, and you must do so with the right heart. And so let's look at how they handled this. Verse 8, we'll pick up there. So some Chaldeans took this occasion, it says, to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They saw them standing. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall... do you like how they're reading back to him everything that he said? Now just remember, you said this. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Verse 12, there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you. Oh, the king. You're the king. They've ignored you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Let that sit a second. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. The accusation that we see in verses 8 through 12. Where does that come from? If you think about it in one direction, you think about how these men were saved, many of them, by the Chaldeans, by the actions of Daniel in the prior chapter, which included Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being brought into positions of more prominence. They were saved by them. Do you know what prideful passing of time creates in people? We talked about what it did for Nebuchadnezzar, desensitized him, made him think more highly than he ought to of himself. What did it do to these men? Created resentment, envy, bitterness. You see, the prideful passing of time has its effect on in different ways in some of us. The enemy's going to play on our, our temptations. Resentment is, I think, very likely the cause of this occasion. In fact, I can't think of any other that the Chaldeans would be looking for to be rid of these Jews who had been recognized. You know, they were even distinguished being far better and above 10 times better in chapter 1. So they kind of had this coming. These guys have been looking it up to them for a while, distinguished above the rest of them. And rather than seeing them as the instruments that God used to save their lives and softening, being humble... They resent them and seek to destroy them. And, and I want us to think about this, church. Such is the path of those who allow bitterness and envy to rule their lives. We are no different. When we allow resentment and bitterness to build up inside of us for things, and we don't relinquish that, we don't humble ourselves and let that go, it will eat you alive over time. It'll gnaw at that steel. It'll grind that stone to meal. It'll break us down over time and destroy us from within. We have to learn to give things to God. We can't be guilty of this sin that they committed of comparison. They looked at these guys. They looked at themselves. Why them and not us? I was born and raised here, right? Or I came from this place. I'm more distinguished than them. Who cares about these guys that came from that, that, you know, good for nothing city out there that couldn't get their things right and were constantly being destroyed by every nation? You know? You guys, we cannot be guilty of comparing ourselves to others and allowing that envy to set in. Busy yourselves with lovingly obeying the Lord rather than to compare because comparison breeds bitterness and envy. And trust me, I know. Having been a musician and hanging out with a lot of musicians over time, a lot of guys that have big names, a lot of guys that have no names. Do you know what's crazy is to watch how that envy and that comparison, that desire to be like them creates bitterness and creates anger and creates a separation from God rather than a connection to him so that they can lead people in worship. I've watched this happen in so many young guys. They're just comparing themselves to all these other people. If I could just lead worship like that, if I could just do this like that, if I could just, listen, God made you to walk in humility and to obey him, do that and let him use you as he chooses. But when we don't do that, when we're just looking at other people wanting what they have, we become envious. And for lack of a better comparison that comes to mind, I think of David and Bathsheba. We become those who are not satisfied with what God has given, but desirous of what other people have and willing to kill to get it. Don't think that we're far from this. Pride and humility are what separates. How we live our lives in humility will separate us from that type of lifestyle, that type of thought process. Well, the king didn't receive this so well. Not surprising from what we know of Nebuchadnezzar. He gets pretty upset, right? Verse 13, furious rage. He calls them in and he accuses them. What is this that I hear? I'm going to give you another chance. Now think about this. Would Nebuchadnezzar have given anyone else a chance? Just a fun question to ask. Uh, The honest answer, I don't know. I doubt it. I really doubt it. I don't think he would give another people. I think that they were so trustworthy that he's like, okay, going to cut you guys a break. Obey, right? Please, you're valuable to me. Obey, go bow down right? Get that music going, go bow down. Now think about this. Prior to this, we have examples of David requests, or David, Daniel, I said David, now it's stuck in the head. Daniel requesting permission for things, right? Daniel goes in, he asks permission to eat the vegetables in chapter one. Daniel goes to Ariok, requests permission to reveal the dream in Daniel chapter two. Here, they are in an on-the-spot situation, the situation has changed. And some people be like, see, this is how we should practice our lives. Take time, pray about it, think about it, do it. That's great. If you have the opportunity, you should consider, pray about it, be very gentle in your response. You notice here, I don't believe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are harsh in their response. They're firm. They're very firm in response. They're still respectful. They don't look at him and go, listen, trash. Like they don't, they don't start that way at all. They recognize him as the king. They're like, you are the king, but we are not going to obey you in this respect because you are not the king, right? You're an under king. We obey God above all these things. And so it's interesting to see that they're in a very different situation of they have to make a decision in the moment. They have to think on their feet as it were. And are we ready? to think on our feet because there comes a time when obeying God will mean that we disobey men. I don't believe we're in that situation in our culture right now. Okay. I'm just going to say that straight out. There are things that might be coming down the pike, but right now I don't think we're in a situation where our government is saying, you are not allowed to worship Jesus. You're going to worship this right now. It could be coming. Are we prepping? Are you prepping for that? You know, are we getting ready for the moment where someone might say, do this or die? There are Christians in other places of the world. They're being told to disown Jesus, to discredit Christ, to renounce their faith or die. And they are choosing death. Are we prepping our lives to be that sacrificial, to be that devoted to God? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in this situation. Here for these three, the time has come for them to make a stand. And not just to make a stand outside in front of the idol, but to make a stand to the king and tell him who they truly serve. And this is a difficult thing, but we know this from Exodus chapter 20, verses 2-5. through five. I believe they knew this as well. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. There is no room for negotiation. God says, don't, that's it. They got Nebuchadnezzar saying do and God saying don't. And so they have to make a decision. And there are times when we have to respond in the right way and do the right thing immediately or we might fail the test. There will come times we have to make the right decision in the moment immediately or we'll fail. And my question is, have we been practicing in private? What will then be revealed in public in that moment? Who is the God that can rescue you from my power? Pride plus time is the great desensitizer. He's forgotten who the true God is. He's pushed him aside. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of kings, the God now. He is the one to be worshipped. Will they respond? And we've read this, but let's read it again. Verse 17, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Nothing doing. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. The Aramaic imperfect verb. Yes, of yes, as if I can say it properly, it's the word that's used for, um, he can rescue in this context, this context, it indicates possibility. When you see it say he can save, it's a possibility and not a certainty. If you look at the way the verb is used in the original language, what's fascinating about that to me is there's some question as to which way this is going to go for them. They're not looking at him going, we know what the Lord's going to do. They're looking at him saying, we don't know what the Lord's going to do. And that doesn't change their statement. That doesn't change their stance. In fact, it makes their stance even more powerful. Because what they are saying is being said so much louder when we recognize that they're saying, God doesn't have to save us to be glorified. God doesn't have to save me from this situation to be glorified. He can actually be glorified and honored in my death. Fox's Book of Martyrs is a book I think everyone should read because I think we see so many great examples of people who are willing to die so that God could be glorified. There are things worth dying for. The name of Christ is at the top. Their faith in God did not rest on the belief that he would perform a miracle, but that their sovereign God could be trusted. They weren't depending on a miracle. They were depending on God because he can be trusted with either direction, death or life, because either way our soul belongs to him. How do we look at this? When God tests our faith, how are we holding up? How are we holding up when God's putting us through a season that's testing our faith? Do we find ourselves wanting to give in and bow to the idol? Don't picture it the same as what's happening here. Are we bowing to idols in our lives now because things are tough and we're, we're shrinking back? Are we standing up for what's right? Are we being like Jesus? It's funny because a lot of times people, well, how how does, how would the Lord have you handle this situation? Be like, Sermon on the Mount's going to answer a lot of those questions. Yeah, but you don't understand the situation. They are striking me. And he said, turn the other cheek. And he didn't say once or twice. Well, that means that we're just going to lay down. I mean, what does that mean for the church today? Does that mean that we just don't stand for anything? No, it means that you're willing to go to the cross, just like Jesus was. That you're willing to do the right thing all the way to the cross, to a Roman cross, to be tortured and murdered there. That's who we should be. You know, when we talk about being Christ-like, we think about being loving, compassionate, merciful, graceful. You know, the wind in our sails. Do we picture a beaten, bloody, broken Savior? Do we picture a man that's marred beyond image, drenched in his own sweat and blood, crying out in pain on a Roman instrument of torture? When we say be Christ-like, that's what I be saying. That's what we're talking about. Is that what we're thinking of? Because Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount just to give us this idea of what we might be able to pull off, but like winking at the disciples. You're not going to have to do this, but i got to say it. Right? Jesus lived every bit of what he said all the way to death. And that's why he said, if any man wants to come after me, you're going to take up your cross. You're going to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound like fun. It sounds like purpose. It sounds like calling. It sounds like being like Jesus. And so we need to think about what we're going through, church, and I want to encourage you with James 1, 2 through 4 when he said, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete lacking nothing endurance steadfastness and and I, and this it all comes from the testing of faith testing our faith putting it to the test going what's it really made of is your faith in anything but god because if it is it'll fail but if it doesn't fail then we know where it's at we know where that faith is. And Warren Weir'sby rightly said this, God tests us to develop our faith because the faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. If it is not put to the test, you don't know if you can trust it. In other words, if I say I have faith in a chair, yet I never sit in it, it hasn't been tested. I prove it when I sit in it. When it's put to that test and God says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's like, put your faith in me. And your, your faith won't fail. It's a great opportunity. I'm gonna have the worship, um, crew come on up. It's a great opportunity at this point to, um, do something we haven't done as a church for a little while just because of COVID, but we're gonna, we're gonna share communion together this morning. And and as we think about Jesus, I just want to go back to that picture of Christ. That picture of Jesus as we think of who am I? being conformed into the image of you know we talk about it in in Romans chapter 12 often you know that we should be living sacrifices and not to be conformed to the world but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds but Paul says it more clearly in another of his letters when he says that we need to be conformed into the image of his son he says we need to be conformed into the image of Jesus and do we see Jesus as the sacrificial lamb the one who lays his life down for the sheep do we see him as broken body and, and spilled blood? And so as we take communion together this morning, and as, as this is handed out, you guys, the, the communion is just going to be in a cup with the, the bread on top and the, the juice underneath. It's all one little package. I want you to hold on to this. And as we take this communion together, I want us to consider... Do we have people handing them out? Okay. I want us to consider um, what it looks like for us to, to be Christ-like to be conformed into his image as we take communion as we take communion we remember his bread, we remember his body with the bread and we remember his blood with the juice i just want you guys to think about this we're going to sing for a second and then we'll take that together so hold on to it and we'll share communion